0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Where am I? I am. I'm again. I'm sitting in the van again, um, this time in a parking lot. So it's a bit quieter than last time Uh, in Spokane. Came here yesterday straight from Kalispell, Montana. It has been a pretty intense few weeks, I gotta say. It's weird to say that every time I say that, I think like, oh, it's been an intense year, oh, two years. Oh, it's been an intense six years, which is true and <laughs> valid. Um, but yeah, the last uh, few weeks in particular have been a lot. And uh, Chris and I rented a hotel room for a few days to take some baths, to get some work done and to relax. Um Last week was our Sex at Dawn retreat, which was co-facilitated by myself and Cameron and Malayne Shane at their beautiful, beautiful house in Whitefish, Montana. And it's so interesting, like, thinking about when we first sort of had this idea, when it sort of cropped up, I guess, a year ago when we visited them for the first time, and then we really formalized things uh, this past winter. And it was one of those things in life where we just thought like, I have no idea what to expect with this. Chris nor I had ever run a retreat before. Like we'd speak in at events, but spoken at events, but it's definitely different to really like hold space for a group of people for an extended period of time. And we certainly, we hadn't done that separately. We hadn't done it together. So it was sort of like, all right, let's jump off this cliff and see what happens. Um, And I just couldn't be more thrilled with how it turned out. And if you've been listening to me talk for a while on this podcast or you know me personally, you know how I have been pretty much like nonstop thinking about community and setting up a community space in order to welcome all of you in. And so far, a lot of that's been remote through the podcast, through different things that I've offered through the podcast via Zoom, especially because of COVID. Um, But ultimately, what I've always wanted is to set up an actual tangible, tangible, physical space, create a little mini world, and invite those who would like to come to come. And I've always sort of envisioned this very kind of egalitarian structure where you're not just coming to like learn from me, but maybe... You're coming to learn from me along with several other people who I've invited to teach who have different skills and really curating an experience similar to how I think I curate this podcast, right? It is me, but it's also with a bunch of other people whose knowledge I feel is worth sharing. And... I think that was partially what was so nice about this retreat because it was myself and Chris and Cameron and Melane, and each of us have a different perspective and different experience. And although a lot of our interests and expertise, you know, connect in very interesting and organic ways, they're also, you know, what we have to offer is different. And to be able to see and to experience what it's like to partner with people who I who I love and who I respect and who I admire and teach along with them was just phenomenal. And not even to mention the group of magnificent humans that attended. I think we were about 20, 22 or something like that. And it was just so comfortable and I felt so... I remember there was one moment I remember I went to go grab something in the van was sort of walking back to the main house. And I just thought, like, how is this work? Like, how how is it possible that me basically going to like a mini summer camp with a bunch of cool people is my work? I mean, even the podcast and Substack and all of that, like, I have that thought with those things, too. But I'm certain that ultimately what I want to be doing is sharing physical space with other people and interacting with people in that way. And whether that's retreats or whether that's just, you know, living close by to people or just teaching workshops or trainings, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't really even care what it is. Um, But being able to hang out with people who are like-minded and who share core, core values is just fucking priceless. It's so cool. And I'm just sort of in awe at how wonderful this experience was and how motivated I am to do more of these. I would say the most challenging part about the last few weeks is that I think I mentioned the last in the last intro, Chris got COVID basically the day we were planning to pack up the van and leave. And he was pretty sick for about a week, but then he started to get better and he got better and he got better and he got better. And And so there was about a week of like very clear incremental healing. But for whatever reason, the day we got to Montana, which was a couple days before a retreat was set to begin, he started feeling Really shitty again some of the same symptoms came back some new symptoms appeared and he was just really struggling uh i can't believe he got it himself together enough to like participate in the retreat but afterwards i think his body and the universe were like i think he said he had the sit down and shut up virus <laughs> because i really think that's what he needed just to sit down and shut up for a while um and he really like pulled himself together to to be present and to participate in the tr- the retreat and nobody was pressuring him to do that and I know everyone was everyone was so kind and so loving and uh but I was a little worried we were sleeping outside in our van and it got down to like 40 in Montana and the van's a little bit insulated we've got some warm blankets but like not the place to be not the thing to be doing when you're sick so uh, props to Kevin. We had a, also we had a meetup the day after the retreat, which was like the last thing Chris needed. Um, but it was still really fun. A lot of people from the retreat came, some other people who were local came to Kevin's place in Kalispell. And then we just basically, or Chris basically just like slept for three days in Kevin's little guest apartment, And that was super helpful. And, went to the doctor got some tests nothing crazy alarming but we're gonna go get him some more tests here in the next few days or so and uh yeah so I I feel like I'm in this place where as someone who I think is a little bit prone to burnout and overwhelm because I'm the kind of person that wants to do all the things and do them all fully and do them right away um just being present <laughs> to the energy and the messages that I feel like I'm getting, which are to, to slow down and to resist the temptation to do all the things. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, Chris and Chris and I at this point are in some kind of pattern where we're like... <laughs> I feel like I've I've shared this enough times to enough people where I realize this isn't just like a one-time thing. It's a pattern. And the pattern is that we keep saying we're going to slow down and take some time and then we don't. And then we travel and then we go here and then we go there and then we do this and then it's like, oh, a years passed and we still haven't done that settling down thing. Um, and part of it is that we don't feel ready to build our own place and part of it is that we don't know where to settle down and those are all valid. But I think the universe is giving us a big A big, big sign um, that it's time to seriously take seriously (laughs) the message of slowing down. Um, So I'm a bit bummed about that. I was maybe planning to go to Mexico in November to continue my Contact Beyond Contact training, which I think I'll have to put off until the next time that's offered. And yeah, it looks like we'll... Have a sort of light, leisurely van trip over the next couple months and then probably spend the winter again in Crestone, Colorado, which will be nice. Anyway, today's episode is with Eden. Uh, her full name is Deborah Eden Toll, but she goes by Eden. And I had this conversation with her all the way back in Georgia when we were in Georgia, the country. And I can hear that um, this was recorded, I think the day after I recorded the podcast with Stephen Jenkinson and I was recovering from COVID and I can like still hear that in my voice a long ways away. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to finally release this podcast. I read her entire book before I interviewed her because it was definitely a topic I'm super interested in, which is the darkness and the unknown and using that space to learn and to grow, and resisting the very cultural and societal norm, uh, not just in our culture, but I think worldwide, of prioritizing, you know these more daytime masculine forms of value, productivity and um, chronology and linear progress, and just being on all the time. And I think I learned the most by far in my life by periods of isolation and removing myself from the noise and the lights and the sounds and the distractions and surrendering into the, the sheer terror uh, of the darkness. I mean, in many ways, I don't really think I had a choice. I think I probably did have a choice. Um, But I I really do feel like I was sort of pushed into that place and felt, like I think I've brought this up before, one of the first things I remember I got divorced and I got really sick and I couldn't live in my house anymore and my life was falling apart. And I remember saying to my mom in the very early days, like, this is the worst pain I've ever been in, like, torturous, but I know I'm supposed to be here. And I've never, I never felt that certain about being in the right place at the right time as I did in the worst moment. And that was super telling and that, and that certainty, that feeling of knowing I was where I needed to be carried me through. Because then I became a student of something, an apprentice of something. Okay, I'm accepting that I'm here. I know I'm supposed to be here and I wanna know why. So I was curious, almost ravenously curious and radically accepting of whatever came my way. Doesn't mean it was easy, doesn't mean I wasn't angry, doesn't mean I wanted to not doesn't mean I didn't want it to go faster, because I fucking did. And this wasn't an overnight process. Like my certainty of of knowing I was where I needed to be did not mean You know, I think I thought the process would be a lot shorter than it was. It was probably about two years um, that I lived in isolation and went to therapy three times a week and suffered through some really bad physical illness and separated from my mother and several different romantic partnerships and friendships and just went on and on and on and on. Um, But I would never trade that period of time for anything and I would do it all over again and I miss it genuinely I I miss the clarity of that time and I'm prepared to be in that sort of dark night of a soul dark night of the soul again at some point and I, I've had some some slips back into the dark nothing like that but you know If I live a long life, which I hope to, I'm sure I'll be back in that place at some point. And so that's what this conversation is about today. It's about um, Eden's book, Luminous Darkness, and about her experience navigating the unknown and the dark. And I've also been thinking a lot recently about where we land when we come out of that tunnel. What happens at the end of the hero's journey? Where do we go? What do we go back to? And I've been thinking this about this a lot, especially over the last month because I've met up with so many amazing people from the podcast before the retreat and then the retreat and then the meetup. And I realize how much that I and, and our culture celebrate this idea of the hero's journey and this idea of individuation and authenticity. And I fucking love all those things. And all of those things are incredibly important narratives in my overall life, my overall life mythology. I have the the symbol of Mars tattooed on my finger. Mars shows up very prominently in my astrology chart and it symbolizes autonomy and independence and embodiment and the self and that process that i went through of coming home to myself was imperative and it is imperative for everyone i think right i think whether we grow up and grew up in a fundamentalist religion or with in an abusive household or just american culture or western culture in general i think it's important that we go through a process of deconstructing and reconstructing ourselves And finding out who we are and what's important to us and where our boundaries are and what we need. But then what happens? I feel like we get stuck there a lot of the time. And I remember what it was like to be in the place that I was in, living alone, finally standing up for myself, finally doing what I needed to do for me. I think I remember saying to my brother, we went through a very difficult period of time with this. He did not understand what I was doing. And I said, like, you're just going to have to excuse me, but I'm just going to, I just like need to be a selfish bitch for a little bit. Like I haven't ever been a selfish bitch. (laughs) I think I used that term because I was just constantly like, oh, you need me to do this. Okay. I had no concept of boundaries. I was incredibly codependent and all of my relationships. And I had to really like fight against my desire to sacrifice my needs. It was difficult. And I I had to sort of become a warrior who was defending me. I had to put up armor. Like I had to, otherwise people could just walk right through me as they were. And as I was giving them permission to. So I put up all this armor and I was angry and I was in touch with my anger and I had my own place for the first time in my life and I decorated it how I want to and I ate what I wanted and I went to bed when I wanted and I just, it was fucking awesome. (laughs) Like it was so great because I think that autonomous, autonomousness, like not only I do think that's an important thing for everyone to experience, but I think I have it quite strongly. I think I really need to feel a degree of freedom Or at the very least, just know that whatever I'm doing doesn't require me to sacrifice myself. Because I'm also incredibly oriented toward relationship and cooperation and all of that. But I feel like I needed this guiding light and I needed to understand how to keep it on no matter what. And I feel like I see a lot of people going through that process, like including myself, and then not continuing and the continuing is is re-entering the relational world re-entering the communal world. There was this great line that this great interaction I had with my therapist where I remember talking to her about this such a great therapist who always challenged me on all of my preconceived notions and rationalizations and assumptions. And I remember saying like, this is, it was right at the beginning of our time together. Like, this is my time to be independent. This is my time to fight codependency. I've never been alone. I've always been in relationships. Like me, 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 me. And he was like, yeah, that's important. But that's not actually where you're headed. Like the end of the journey is for you to be able to re-enter relationships and learn how to be in relationships where you feel seen and loved and supported. And she went on to say, and that's what we're here to do in our time together, that I'm going to model that for you. And then I sobbed for like 45 minutes. um, But that was, I'm so glad she said that. When she did. And I'm so glad I had that in the back of my mind from the beginning of like, okay, yes, I need to work on myself. Yes, I need to spend time alone. Yes, I need to figure out who I am. Yes, I need to practice setting boundaries, but only because that's going to be my initiation back into togetherness and interacting with others and interacting with. world and the planet and nature and anything that is other than me. And I feel so identified with and I feel so much admiration for Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and Jung's work with authenticity and individuation and the self, but I feel like it's time, the right time, to continue that story farther. And what is the point of doing all of that work to know ourselves if we can't re enter the world of relationship as ourselves? Like we are relational beings, that's not debatable. <laughs> we are not meant to live alone, uh, we come from tribes where we lived very close-knit with others. Yes, we live in way too big of a world. The scale is way too large. Culture is way too large. But we are a communal species and a relational species. And if we're using these lessons around codependency and autonomy and authenticity and individuality, you know, or sovereignty, I hate that word, but sovereignty or rugged individualism to escape the responsibility that we have To be in relationship, then we're just lying to ourselves. We're just using our intelligence and our ways and our rationalizations to avoid the vulnerability of being together. And it's okay to avoid that for a little while, get your footing, figure out who you are, But then we can't go farther without being with each other. We can't go farther without people triggering us, without allowing people to see us, without seeing ourselves as a reflection. Like, that's what people are. They're mirroring us, whether those are friends or family members or romantic partners, teachers. This is how we keep going. And I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you are obsessed with self-improvement and growth and evolution as much as I am. And that's how it continues. It continues with other people. So as I mentioned last time, if you heard the podcast that I recorded with Whitney, uh, Whitney and I are um, co-facilitating a six-month container, of course, called Retrograde with Intention. We did this course last winter, uh, which took place over the course of the Venus retrograde. Mars is about to go retrograde in the sign of Gemini. It's a much long longer retrograde, and it's also a, um, a more rare retrograde. And Mars, as I mentioned, is represents autonomy and individuality and the self and individuation and the body and action and will and... Really, the archetype of the warrior, the hero, the hero's journey, all of that is in Mars. And Gemini is ruled by Mercury, Hermes. Hermes is the psychopump. Psychopump is this figure that weaves between worlds, between realms, the living, the underworld. Gemini is about information. It's about curiosity. It's about navigating different opinions, different ideologies, different ways of seeing things. How are we expressing ourselves? How do we understand how other people are expressing themselves? It's about linguistics and that sort of sharing of information, but also energetic. You know, we don't just express ourselves with words. We express ourselves in the way that we embody ourselves, the energy that we put off. And I really think that, I mean, I've, I've, especially over the last year, been thinking a lot about the sign of, of Gemini and the, the archetype of the cycle pump specifically, um, Mercury also rules Virgo, but specifically related to Gemini. I really think this is about, this archetype is about like otherness, Right. The, the paradox, the the interaction of different ideas and opinions and the evolution of those ideas and opinions. And I think all air signs have this quality. If we look at Gemini and we look at Libra and we look at Aquarius, there's a lot of this like interaction and activity, right? Aquarius around community, Libra around relationship, Gemini around information and communication. It's all it's all air, right? And air is in everything and around everything and in and out of everything. Um, we don't see it, so we don't pay attention to it a lot, but it's really air is how we are connected to everything at all times. And Gemini is the first air sign that we get in the chrono- uh, chronological order of the zodiac. And yeah, I think it's about like how how can we look at a tree and understand what it's trying to tell us, and how can we look at a person who's may- who's talking, even in a language we understand, but still or or we don't understand, <laughs> and figuring out what they're trying to say, what are they expressing, and we have to listen, and we have to be careful not to project, right, our own opinion or our own experience at the other. So Gemini, I think, is, is all about this otherness, being surrounded by and constantly engaged with that which is other than ourselves. And so it, in for me, the way that I'm approaching this transit, retrogrades are when planets You know, appear to be going backwards in the sky. They're not actually going backwards, but they are close, and um, it's an opportunity to slow down and to really focus on that archetype. So it's it's a time when Mars goes retrograde. It's a time to focus on the archetype of Mars, and things will come up around this archetype, and then specifically wherever this archetype is, this planet is going retrograde in the chart, which is Gemini. And of course, each of us have our own unique natal charts, so. While we will be collectively experiencing something, we all will be individually experiencing something as well. So where is Gemini in your chart? Is it in the house of relationships? Is it in the house of career? Is it in the house of spirituality, aloneness, and isolation? And then how does Mars figure into your chart? Is it strong? Is it not an archetype you relate to that much? So we're going to be going through all of these things In a sort of broad sense, we're going to talk about mythology, cosmology, uh, archetypal psychology related to all of these things, both Mars and Gemini. And then we're also going to have time uh, to talk about everyone's individual chart. So this starts tomorrow, actually. Uh, Friday, September. I'm sorry. Today's Friday. It starts on Saturday, uh, September 17th. And if you happen to be hearing this anytime in September, even if it's after the 17th and you would like to sign up, you can sign up late. We will be recording all of the lectures. The first lecture is tomorrow, Um, but you don't really have to attend anything live until early October. So if you'd like to join late, that's fine. You can watch that first lecture at any time. And there's going to be, I think, five lectures. All of them will be recorded. They happen on Saturday evening, so you're welcome to attend, Um, but you can also just watch the replay. We're going to have group discussions where all of you can meet together live and discuss whatever it is you'd like to discuss. And then we're also, Whitney and I are going to each uh, hop on Zoom and have some open office hours. You can come with your chart. We can really get into the nitty gritty of your questions. It'll just be a time for extra learning and extra connection. So if any of what I've been talking about so far, autonomy, individuality, and then bringing that journey home into the space of connect connection and togetherness if you're struggling with that if you don't understand that if you just see these things popping up for you in your world I'd love for you to join us there's a lot here (laughs) I think when Whitney and I first decided to teach this class we were like okay what sort of personal stories can we can we give and um we weren't really quite sure where to orient the course and now just even in the last few weeks Mars has, has entered Gemini um is in the shadow of the retrograde and I have 8 million trillion things to share about about my experience uh, with Mars and Gemini and what that means for me and and inspiring all of you uh, to figure out what it means for you. So I will put the link to sign up to the class in the course description. Um, You can also, if you're on your phone right now, you can go to my Instagram, click the link in bio link. And, um, the first thing up there will be a link to sign up for retrograde with intention. Uh, you can sign up through Whitney's site. So it's star hearth com. Um, if you click on classes, you will see the space to sign up. If you have any questions, if you need a payment plan, please don't hesitate to reach out. We're happy to accommodate you and your needs. Okay. I think that's all. I will share for now. If you would like to join our community on Substack, I would love to have you there. I just posted something yesterday asking you to help me write the elevator pitch for this podcast. Like every time someone asks me what my podcast is about, I'm, I don't know what to say. I feel like I say like 8 million things or I say something simple that doesn't feel like it encompasses the breadth of what it's about. And I was in the shower the other day and thought, well, why don't I just ask the audience to help me? What is this podcast about? If you were asked to explain it and wanted to do words, what would you say? So anyway, that's up on Substack. A lot of my writing, uh, you can also comment on any of these podcasts. Um, it's a really awesome space that I'm glad to have and uh, grateful to have you in. anyakots.substack.com. I'm going to play you in today with a song by Luca Fogel, which is called Heat and Dark, which I think will be a good introduction to my conversation with Eden. And yeah, I hope you enjoy this song. I hope you enjoy this conversation and I will catch you on the other side. I am here with Eden, and I am looking forward to this conversation, although I always feel sort of funny about saying that I'm looking forward to conversations that delve into topics of darkness or death or grief, but um, I think you probably share this, that this is one of my favorite topics to talk about regardless, Um, so I'm always grateful to share a space with someone to to go back and forth about it. So thank you.
1: I'm grateful to be here with you Anya and very curious to where this uh, co-creative conversation will take us.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, I was struck by reading your book because I think our process was very parallel. Um, I've never studied Buddhism, but as far as Sort of the process of awakening to myself or the process of endarkenment, which I'd like you to talk about, uh, felt very similar. I struggled with um, physical illness quite a bit throughout my life. So that was definitely initiatory for me in many ways. And um, and yeah, also very much found grief uh, to be my greatest teacher, which I definitely think can be put under the umbrella of darkness. Um, so I, I kept thinking while I was reading the book, like, oh, I wish I'd had this book to read six years ago when, when I was going through this process, because I felt like there weren't nearly enough resources to help people through dark nights of the soul or just really, um, difficult times. So I'm glad your book exists now. Um, I, why don't we first talk a little bit about this phrase and darkment because I Think it's lovely and important and maybe talk about how it differs from what we might think of when we think of
1: enlightenment. Sure. Yeah. And I'm with you. I wish this book had been written years ago that I had received it when I was um, a little younger on my path and needing some guidance. And so I really hope it's good medicine for people now because we're facing such unknown and uncertainty collectively. Um, The phrase endarkenment kept coming to me over a period of years, and I had never really heard it used before. And most people begin their Buddhist path, many other spiritual paths, in pursuit of enlightenment. And in the book, I'm really encouraging us to include the notion of endarkenment alongside enlightenment, not either or, one or the other, but just acknowledging that every spiritual pathway rests in the context of its time, in addition to offering timeless teachings. And my experience of the modern world has been there's so much residue from the collective human held bias towards light against dark. We see this in so many forms from the overlighting of our planet. I love dark places, dark spaces, um, the blackness of the night sky at the new moon, um, the medicine of darkness in nature. And instead we have, of the US and Europe, 60% of the globe, overly artificially lit at night now. We see this bias against dark in how humans relate to ourselves, to one another. In so many spiritual pathways, it's infused, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, this kind of attempt to get to the light, to push away what is dark, uncomfortable, and also a really unconscious labeling of everything that makes us uncomfortable as dark like the way when i started writing this book i would hear darkness referred to didn't in any way shape or form reflect my actual experience of darkness and so in this book i'm asking us to look at those biases and let them go and then also recognize what many different spiritual traditions have already pointed to um, which is the luminous darkness the divine darkness Something more that the consciousness of darkness carries that we really need alongside the light. So I would say endarkenment points to, number one, bringing into committing in our pathways, whether spiritual or secular, right? Um, Much more of a recognition of the, the great teacher of darkness. And I would even say the benevolent teacher of darkness, being willing to lose our fear and habit of rejecting what we consider dark and turn towards with curiosity and respect instead. Another aspect of endarkenment is a willingness to really go down into our bodies and down into the deeper, darker undercurrents of our experience, even within Buddhism. Um, In so many traditions, there's still residue of a body-spirit divide. Um, And I don't find it useful in any way, shape, or form in today's world. So much healing comes from going deeply down into our bodies. Even if we might be, uh, like I grew up in LA, a culture that seemed or appeared kind of obsessed with the body. Uh, This wasn't an obsession with embodiment. Those are two different things. This right. <laughs> was so more an obsession about the body as something we could judge, like, or dislike, um, get overly fixated on, celebrate, but not from an embodied place. So does that make sense? Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just a few other elements of endarkment is really, for me, when we rest in the dark, physically or metaphorically, we kind of let go of the visual perception and surface perception, also hierarchical perception, and something much greater but totally natural to all of us opens up. And it's um, a way of acknowledging our interbeing, not just with the human realm but the more than human realm. And I think in today's world with what we're facing, we really need to rest in that place more. Yeah? Definitely. Yeah. And what, I mean, there's so
0: many different factors that have contributed to this sort of fear of the dark, being afraid of the dark. Um, but you root a lot of your book in sort of the history of how this came about. And I'd love for you to speak about that a little bit. I know that when I was going through this process, I felt as I'm sure so many other people do, this fear of like, if I go there, I'll get lost there. You know, if I go to the underworld, I won't ever come out. Um, and how do we address that fear in the context of sort of this recognition of like why the fear exists in the first place and how we've been sort of programmed to believe them?
1: Great question. Yeah. And just to acknowledge that fear, because I think so many people share it on some level of like, if I go there, I'll never come out. Or even when I teach like, beginners on a meditation retreat, for instance, maybe that's a silent retreat, there can be this desire to be there and practice and open, and then this fear of the quiet, the stillness, the empty space, because that emptiness is dark. It's darkness in the way of open possibility. It's not scripted or, or filled. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. So I think um, one of the things I pointed to in the book is, you know, with so much of the call for healing in today's world, there's a recognition that's much more beginning to be shared recognition of, (laughs) I can't really say that, so let me take that statement back. I don't know (laughs) to what degree it's beginning to be shared. More people are beginning to open their eyes to it, Mm -hmm. to just the legacy of disconnect from the natural world, serious disconnect from ourselves and the earth, the impact of such a long legacy of patriarchy, of rational mind, the Cartesian era, capitalism, colonialism, all of those things have in their own way uh, pointed to Let's get to the light in terms of the light as rational mind. Let's push away the mystery. Let's colonize the mystery. Let's push away and reject practices that honor the body and earth connection. I point to the burning times, a period of about 900 years, when mostly women and so many other people, millions of people, were killed in the name of their practices, which were body-based Earth-based and more about darkness or the mystery than the rational mind. I mean, I could go on. There's been so much impact of all of this. And I feel tenderness in my heart because I sense that many of us still feel the residue in deep levels of that rejection. Darkness is one half of nature and one half of our nature. (laughs) and when we learn instead to embrace the balance of light and dark, and I could talk about this on many levels, but there is just, in my experience, a radical path to wholeness. And what you were pointing to, like our fear of facing shadow, for instance, it becomes a joyful um, endeavor to learn how to meet and greet shadow with openness with curiosity without fear with compassion to find out that exactly those things i don't know if this has been your experience too that we've labeled shadow and tried to push away are wild tremendous sources of power Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah yeah
0: Yeah, and i'd i'd love to expand upon the idea of how the feminine relates to this as well, because it's something I talk about all the time. And in fact, have sort of adopted through various teachers, this concept of, because I recognize that these terms of masculine and feminine are sort of like heated points of debate right now, um, that we can sort of think of it as, or at least I refer to it often as like night and day psychology, um, feminine being the night and masculine being the day. And I I wonder too if this hesitance we have toward moving toward the dark and the shadow and the unknown is this obsession of control uh, with control that we have, um, and like how do we break that apart especially uh, in regard to like trying to seep deeper into these other um, really important tools like surrender. Uh, which may be regarded more on the feminine night psychology side of things.
1: Yes, there's so much here in what you're pointing to. And yes, we want to be really mindful of language and aware of how loaded uh, feminine and masculine is. But when we're not talking about it in terms of conditioned cultural gender archetypes and we're talking about it in a more elemental way, like yin and yang, lunar, solar. Um, just think of it as simply as um, passive or resting in nature versus the active, the bright light. And there's many ways we could we could talk about it. In my life, yes, and in my work, there's a great connection between the feminine and darkness. Often I use the phrase dark feminine. And again, I want to emphasize that I'm pointing to something more elemental than gender-based and that each and every one of us uh, contain the natural interplay of yin and yang in our own ways. But we can acknowledge that collectively the yin has been massively pushed away, massively rejected, undervalued. Um, One of the I think ways we can see patriarchy in action, recognize it, is this need to control, as you're pointing to, this need to control the wild, this need to label rather than be with life as it is, this need to categorize, this need to, again, control that which is, (laughs) Tree and even simply the way that any patriarchal system creates a set of rules and kind of uh, here's the right way to do things and here's the wrong way and you can either follow the program and then succeed get the rewards or you know be rejected. So these threads are deeply woven (laughs) in our global history, right? And it's very interesting because right now we're at a time when many of our external systems that for a long time may have seemed in control are disintegrating a bit, showing their wobbliness, Um, and this can either trigger people into uh, fear or even terror, need to try to take back control again, or... Invite us to learn, which isn't even a learning. It's actually a remembering because deep within, we all know how to do this to be with the unknown, the mystery, the wild, the unfolding, the emergent uh, with an open heart. Yeah. Yeah. For sure.
0: Yeah. And how do you navigate? I feel like this is going to be a difficult question for me to put together, but take your time. <laughs> I feel like I always ask like eight part questions and expect the guests to understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um but you know this sort of dialogue between the inner and the outer, right? Like I've often found that my inner journey, I sort of was going through what I was going through right after Trump got elected. And so there felt like there was this very parallel mirroring process going on between my inner world and the outer world, as far as things falling apart and people coming to terms with things that had long been buried. Um, and I think this happens with a lot of, in a lot of different ways in people's inner processes. Um, but I feel like you talk about that we're in the age of Kali Yuga, this age of distraction. And <clears throat> I think what you were talking about in the book is, is this sort of like way that we, Are distracted by phones and, you know, things that take us out of our body and take us out of our process. But is there a way in which, you know, we can engage with the greater world in a way that's informative and helpful versus like, can all the problems of the world and the planet also be part of that distraction? Because it's so overwhelming that like, how do we sort of navigate the inner and the outer?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. So let me see if I'm with you because there was a lot in there. And first, I hear a question about just how we can, um, in useful ways and skillful ways and life affirming ways, uh, engage with this more integrated. And then I also hear you pointing to a question I'm not entirely sure about how the distracted nature of the dominant paradigm, the distracted nature of just the modern world, which I'd be happy to, to talk yeah. about, um, can include or get even more muddled with how intense our world issues are right now. Yeah. Do you want to clarify?
0: <laughs> um, all of that. Yeah, it was both okay. of those. Cl- that was It was those two parts for sure. You got Great. it. <laughs> okay, thank you.
1: Yeah, I think okay. first I would say, you know, when I... Started meditating, and uh, my grandma first taught me to meditate when I was a kid on a camping trip by a by a creek. And then I kind of picked it up as like a formal, regular practice just after high school. Did my first silent retreat, and everything about it resonated with me. But one of the things is, it became really clear to me just more and more and more seeing the patterns in everything, the patterns in everything, and seeing. Myself and the way my ego operates, for instance, and then the collective ego and our collective conditioning. So I come from a family of activists and my whole meditation practice, the whole time I've been practicing, it's it's been a bridge between the personal and the collective. It's been about personal and collective awakening because I see so clearly that uh, each and every one of us can be a vessel for releasing this collective ego, which is easier than we think, by the way, and remembering who we really are, and that we help each other to do this. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, famous Buddhist teacher, has been known to say that uh, community is the next Buddha. So a lot of what I teach is about uh, collective, waking up together. That said, um, and, and everything, everything, In our lives becomes an opportunity to see how can I, on behalf of the collective, how can I, feeling the support of the collective, knowing myself as part of, not separate from, collective consciousness, to be frank, um, remember the conscious choice I have right now, because we have a choice in every moment, and that's something a lot of humans haven't been taught, that we do have spiritual agency. Does that make sense so mm-hmm. far? Yeah, And that's incredibly freeing. It's incredibly fun. It's incredibly empowering. And also, it actually has to be on behalf of the collective, in my experience, because when we're trying to do it, like some people might take on a mindfulness practice just to lessen stress or improve their lives a bit. In my experience, to really access the courage required to fully embody your path and also the love required. It has to have a a continual and ever deepening recognition of this whole. And by the whole, I mean all of life, Gaia consciousness, that that's why we're doing it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then for your other piece, I think it's really important to acknowledge, uh, how much distraction there is in today's world. The first instruction when someone sits down to meditate or goes on a meditation retreat, for instance, is uh, turn your attention within. And that person might have the recognition that their attention is habitually out, out on phone calls and texts and emails, out on billboards and what's happening visually in the field around me out on that other person and the attention I think I need from them or approval out in my mind and stories, it's out. It's not anchored within. Right. So there's so much I could say about this, but I don't want to say too much. Um, That's what we were here for, for you to say as much
0: (laughs) as you want.
2: Thank you
1: for that. (laughs) Just learning how to turn our attention within and find our center the spaciousness within provides an entirely different ground it's actually groundlessness but ground from which to meet the world of distraction and back to the issue of how much intensity there is to be with today i don't know one human work with people all over the world whether it's people i mentor and teach or colleagues or friends everyone's feeling overwhelmed yeah and on top of that, I think the statistic is that in the year 1800, the amount of information a human would take in in one year of their life is what we now take in in one day of our lives. <laughs> so yeah. all that said, I'm going to end this share with a short uh, Buddhist teaching, which is one of the definitions of uh, suffering, which is dukkha is wheel off center. Picture if the wheel of a vehicle is off-center and everything that vehicle is carrying is impacted, is off-center. So when I went on my first meditation retreat, I remember I brought like relational challenges and uh, heartache and my pain about the world and my shortcomings and all these things that seemed like problems in my life. You with me? Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating to notice that in that retreat, over that time period, the wheel came back to center, and I left without any of those things being perceived the same way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so while we think we have to address shit from the external, <clears throat> I got to do something about this, something about that, oh, and I got to improve myself, and there's this internal piece that is vital and incomparable in terms of the impact. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know uh, Mark Epstein? Not well or personally, but I yeah. certainly know of Mark Epstein.
0: Yeah, I had him on my podcast a couple of years ago and I thought the way that he he's a Buddhist and a psychologist and he was sort of unpacking the concept of suffering and dukkha and and, and that his interpretation and going into like the life of the Buddha from a psychological perspective and you know that this this i phrase we hear which I'm sure you have thoughts about as well This life is suffering thing is not entirely accurate. And, and his take was more about that, you know, life is about engaging in that, which is traumatic and facing that which is traumatic, which I thought was such a beautiful way to live.
1: Yes. And just bringing that back to the light and dark, it's actually when we're willing to turn towards and engage that, which is traumatic or engage that, which we've labeled dark, Mm -hmm. that, we remember the unwavering light within. We remember, that's the phrase I'm using of who we really are, what we really are. We remember inner resources that we um, forget or haven't been given permission to access and fortify in this world. Yeah? Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I,
0: I wonder if you come across this at all. I talk about it a lot on this podcast and think about it a lot in my own life Um, because I think sometimes I fear, especially among those in my generation, this podcast was very much created because I was sort of sick and tired of being stereotyped um, Mm -hmm. as a millennial, but also a little bit dismayed at how I felt a lot of people in my generation were acting and and sometimes feeding into those stereotypes. Um, And so I really wanted to have conversations that I thought, we're far more sort of like nuanced and uncomfortable and unconventional than I was finding. Um, but there's this, I think so much of what your book is speaking to and what I feel we need is to move toward discomfort and toward the dark and toward the trauma in as best a way that we can and sort of see triggers as invitations as opposed to something to run away from. Um, but of course, in order to do that, we need to have somewhat of a stable safe ground to stand on right like we can't just go and explore our, all of our childhood trauma or any other kind of trauma planetary trauma without support so how do you navigate that or teach about that um i imagine you work with at least some people who are younger as well like you know what is the importance of moving toward that which is uncomfortable um Or when someone says something we don't agree with or don't Mm -hmm. like or. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, here's what's so beautiful. When our spiritual path is infused with the notion that we're trying to push away the dark and get to the light, that's continually uh, adding to our suffering, adding to our striving, adding to a sense that something's wrong and there's somewhere we need to get to that we uh, can't. When we recognize the invitation of learning to turn towards rather than away from what we've labeled dark, first, some basic instruction. (laughs) We're learning to do so with curiosity and openness. Curiosity, openness, and receptivity might be part of the definition of a meditative state. So that state, learning to rest in presence, Rather than learning, rather than resting in the or being caught in the domain of the conditioned mind, is a radically different experience (laughs) to have. When we have some basic tools for resting in presence, and from presence, which is really shared presence, there's an underlying sense, even if someone doesn't have words from it, of not feeling so alone of feeling more grounded and settled, of feeling more peace. From that place, we recognize that we can turn towards and invite into that peace what we're labeling dark. We can turn towards and meet with fierce compassion what we're labeling dark. But we do have to have basic tools for resting, and that word rest is important here, in spacious awareness and presence yeah Mm -hmm. and so we would never um force it it's all all healing is an organic process it unfolds for each person through their inner compass and natural timing but here's the thing healing requires especially healing that's about making sustainable change in our lives, in our world, not just having some cathartic experience and then going back to your shit. Mm-hmm. It has to come from and be navigated by compassion. And what we learn when we bring our lives into meditation is how and what it means. Beyond what we think that word means, what it actually means and requires of us to meet life with compassion. And an extraordinary... Uh, unfolding occurs. We recognize when simply the gentle compassion is required of listening to a part of us we've never ever listened to without judgment in our lives. Uh, Showing, letting be revealed and seen a part of us we've always kept hidden because we judged it as dark. Reaching in and meeting with fierce compassion, a part who truly needs an ally as we do this for ourselves we at the same time learn to do it for others yeah Mm -hmm. so something we could call shadow work (laughs) becomes much less scary (laughs) and i of course would use the word fun for it it's an incredibly life-affirming time yeah 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 yeah
2: for
0: sure and So this idea of hierarchy, I want to delve into a bit because Mm -hmm. it's a thread Mm -hmm. you speak about a lot in your book. And on many levels, I agree with this idea that I, I I think I probably use the word power more than I use the word hierarchy. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think we've, uh, had a very long history of abusing power and abusing hierarchy, uh, or authority even is another word I think we could use. Um, and I struggle with it because I feel like when I look to nature or I look to the animal kingdom, you know, there's sort of different cyclical hierarchies and power dynamics everywhere. You know, life is eating mm-hmm. life and um, things are dying and being reborn and things are yeah consuming each other in a way. And I wanted to sort of ask you, because I think we're, You know, a lot of us, especially those who listen to my podcast, are pretty, pretty conscious of the negative aspects of hierarchy. But do you feel like there's, you know, a version of the future or the world in which, you know, power or even hierarchy isn't um, the thing to be afraid of or demonized? Like, is there a way it can be used consciously right? Like, is there a way we can have leaders and teachers and mentors? Um, Because I feel like my generation's starving for that, right? Like we're, um,
1: anyway, Mm -hmm. yeah. I love this topic. And while I talk some about it in luminous darkness, and I teach a lot about it, I have six month and year long trainings for people who consider themselves change agents or leaders. And I consider that we're all called to be leaders in this time of changing consciousness, where we explore the notion of shared power or power with rather than power over Mm. and authentic power is what that is. But I will say that the next book, which has already begun forming itself is about authentic power Mm. and just something to consider. I really appreciate the, the perspective you brought Uh, from my perspective, authentic power, is simply this, the ability to give and receive love in every moment. Love can take myriad shapes and forms, but it's the ability to give and receive love in every moment. In fact, the quality of openness to life. Um, Yesterday I gave a teaching about Eros and the relationship between Eros and shared power, because Eros is our vibrant aliveness, and our willingness to be open to, engaged with life through our whole beings and bodies, right? So when I talk about power, what people usually phrase power dynamics, for instance, and abuse of power, I rephrase it, dominance dynamics, abuse of dominance, uh, because I think power is something very different. The potential for power is very different. Is that resonating so far?
0: For sure, Yeah. yeah.
1: And one of the things that happens, and again, I, I consider myself a spiritual activist, and that might people might wonder, what even is that? But when I spoke earlier about even when I was 18 and starting to meditate, simply recognizing clearly the patterns in things, um, there's a way that when we become more present, when we become freer from the conditioned mind, personal conditioning, collective conditioning, when we rest in what I called shared presence, we get a a download. (laughs) We have an experience of what shared power actually is. The, The I or separate self that we all have that's constantly standing outside of life, subject, object, Assessing and judging everything. And if you watch it closely, it's in hierarchical perception all the time. That part of the mind, it's labeling everything. as good, bad, positive, negative, better, worse, (laughs) light, dark. We naturally and easily, organically, become freer of that. When we rest instead in presence, when we wake up to presence. And our experiences of shared power, there is no sense of, an eye or ego that wants to be higher or lower than someone else. There is no, there would be no hunger to put someone on a pedestal. There's a sense of, I think the best and simplest way to put it is interconnection that we all know about and we all recognize and celebrate, but we embody it. And so our actions are aligned with interconnection rather than separate self or ego. That's shared power. (laughs) And there's a ton um, more we could get into about it because it's very nuanced. How do we then act from shared power? How are certain qualities like humility, like receptivity, like deep listening, like attunement, really important expressions of leading from shared power? Yeah?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I want to delve a little bit deeper into... The pedestal thing, um, because I see it everywhere. And it's I'm
1: crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, And I feel very conscious of it as someone that's had a platform for the past few years and feel, you know, consistently called to, at the very least, talk about these dynamics of putting people on pedestals and projecting and all of this. And I would love if you could, I know it's sort of a long story, but I was really um, affected by your, uh, experience in the monastery and having these physical things come up and sort of the process by which they asked you to examine requests of any kind. And, um, if you could go into that a little bit and, and sort of speak about, you know, it's, it's so, I think what I remember saying in therapy at one point, several years ago, After experiencing what I felt like were, I don't know, abuses of power or, Mm -hmm. um, and or, you know, partially my own, um, uh, lack of discernment around people's interests or, um, not interests, but people's intentions. And I kept saying this thing like, but how could anybody be that cruel or how could anybody do this? And she's like, do you realize you've said that now about like three different people uh, consecutively? Like maybe it's time to recognize that like this does exist. Um, But it must have been an incredibly uh, sad experience for you to kind of witness the dissolution of an ideal that you constructed mm. around these sorts of institutions?
2: Mm. Mm.
1: Here's what I would uh, offer. First, I would just say that I'm part of a community of Generation X, Dharma teachers. And we gather every couple years, we have continual incredible conversations about ways we're called to do things very differently than our teachers, for instance and ways that these times call for a bigger awakening to collective biases and, as you said, power or dominance dynamics that have been woven through human history in crazy ways, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's a beautiful thing, um, the ways that, for instance, through witnessing both what works, what a good teacher embodies, and and what doesn't work, um, I feel really grateful to be at a place where I'm in this exploration of shared power with so many people uh, giving our hearts and souls to it. It's, it's amazing. Now back to what you asked about the monastery. I entered the monastery where I trained uh, quite young at 26, and every everything contains light and shadow everything does so i've learned that you know this path uh, buddhism which is part of my daily spiritual practice throughout this lifetime my core uh, essence is from zen and i also practice animism and shamanism in particular ways that have been uh, passed to me every spiritual pathway Contains light and shadow and the cultures humans create, as far as I can tell, um, at least up until this point, like we've really we're good at creating cultures that have dominance dynamics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we were a silent monastery and I've learned of uh, similar spiritual communities and I've in many different places where, again, there's great light and also the shadow of these strange dynamics. We were a silent monastery and there was an incredible gift to getting to live in silence in the wilderness, just coming together a few times a week for community Dharma meetings. And the training there was extraordinary. Uh, I was drawn to um, a teacher who was quite radical and who uh, touched the fire in my heart at that time in a beautiful way. And some of what I experienced and witnessed there um, I mean, I'll be grateful for life. That said, there was a hierarchical structure where, for instance, because too much emphasis was being made on keeping the ego in check, which is not actually necessary to have an over-focus on keeping the ego in check, um, Monastics who were uh, newer there or there less time would run everything by higher-ups. And there was plenty of room for, quite honestly, abuse of power, abuse of dominance, not through any malicious intent, just because that messiness is inherent in any hierarchical structure. I want to pause and ask if this is making sense so far. Yes. (laughs) Okay, good. And so I had some interesting experiences there where one that I talked about in the book was a time when I got bit by a black widow spider. And to be honest, this is part of the light. It was freeing in a way to, instead of just acting from the part of us who wants what I want right now, or has conditioned reactions without the spaciousness to see through them and have choice. When I would get, when something would happen, Black Widow spider bite, and I didn't know that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Instead of just saying, I'm going to the doctor now, or I need to get checked out, you would post a note. Hey, this thing happened, not sure what's going on. And then One of the higher-ups came and checked it out, and in this case, many cases, they made wise choices, but in this case, they said, uh, I think it's totally fine. Hang out with it, and in fact, sit with it. can sometimes be a (laughs) wise instruction and sometimes uh, not wise instruction in practice, a spiritual bypass of sorts. So I sat with it, sat with it for a few days until it got so bad that I was feverish, hallucinating, and had to be rushed to the doctor. And the doctor said, black widow spider bite, you had about one more day, you could have died from this. This has gone into your entire system. And I spent weeks and weeks on antibiotics recovering. But that's an example and a vulnerable one to share um, about ways that when we set up structures in the name of spirituality, in the name of awakening, and this happens in centers all over the world, right? where we're not in touch with our own agency, but we're giving too much authority to the external authority, it can get slippery. And the last thing I would say about it right now is, it's tricky because there's something beautiful and compassionate about a good teacher, and I had a good teacher saying, hey, I wanna meet you with such compassion that you're gonna be held accountable to keeping, for instance, your ego in check to recognize that your conditioned reactions are not the end to who you are, that you have more choice. So, there are these supports that can be uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's hard compassion. But what I wanted to point to in that section of the book was in today's world where we have such a legacy of dominance dysfunction, we need to really all pay attention to it. And anyone, on a path needs to be aware of the difference between respect and spiritual friendship, which is Kalyanamita is a phrase we use for this that I think is right relationship to have with the teacher versus putting our teachers or others, those who inspire us on pedestals and putting ourselves below the pedestal. So hopefully that discernment resonates for people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, uh, how to phrase it? I feel I've had some not so great experiences with spiritual teachers in the past. And I feel like because this, I don't even know if it's like become commonplace. I think it's relatively, it's been relatively common for a while. I think what's become commonplace is that more people are willing to talk about it now. <laughs> um, But I also, similar to you, if I could step back from the situation and a lot of time needed to be uh, needed to pass in order for me to actually look at the situation relatively objectively. You know, I I sort of said things similar to you did that, you know, this was a situation and experience that was both light and dark and that ultimately I learned so much that I was really grateful to learn, uh, not just through the parts that were untouched by the darkness, but also by the darkness itself. Um, so how do we, you know, I feel like so, because so many people are so angry and often rightfully so about abuses of power and hierarchy, how can we sort of keep this balance of, I don't know what the balance is. I, I guess I want to hear what you have to say about it, but, you know, looking at the situation objectively or recognizing what role we may have played in it, or instead of trying to seek revenge or cancel people to really look critically at the situation overall and, and maybe look ahead to say, like, is that the best? Does that solve anything?
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, my second book, was called Relational Mindfulness, and uh, I write a bit about this in that book. Hmm. There's a way that... I'm pausing and just looking within to see how I want to frame this. Part of practice is acceptance, and kind of coming back down to earth, beyond the realm of concepts and ideas and conditioning. It's incredibly peaceful and empowering to live down to earth. And from that place we see everything and everyone contains light and shadow. We see, oh, I learned some lessons through what works and some lessons through what doesn't work. We see, oh, failure is not actually failure, I can receive phenomenal lessons which can inform my life in those situations I label failure. So in other words, we learn to soften the judging mind. We learn to soften the hating mind. Mm. (laughs) We learn to be more accepting. And so we learn to embrace the beautiful, dynamic, and messy aspects of being human and of human culture, and of human relationships, all human relationships. We learn to let go of this notion of like right versus wrong, Um, this notion of moral judgment in a way, and instead become more open to working with it all in a healing way. It's all here, right? Mm -hmm. And so in terms of navigating dominance dynamics which occur, just a few helpful tips for people. Number one, meditation, when I say meditation, I'm pointing to more of a way of life than something you do when you're just sitting down formally on the cushion, for instance, and that there's many ways to meditate. Conscious movement can be a formal practice, but I'm talking about being awake to life. Um, it really invites us to live in the pause. And the pause itself is akin to darkness. Pausing more often, understanding the wisdom of pausing, of slowing down, and as I said earlier, turning within enough to sense the bigger picture, to sense the multi dimensionality of this moment rather than just be driven by what I call shallow listening. Here's what my mind is saying about this situation. Here's what I got to do about it. It's very loud up here. Yeah. Dropping into the depth. And from that pause, There's, number one, so much more room to see nuances. We can see and really feel the intense harm caused by dominance dynamics, by power abuse in a way that informs our hearts and our beings rather than just informs our ideas of right and wrong. We don't need more of that as humans. We don't. It invites us into much, much more compassion. We get to see, wow, I could look at my own uh, inner dominating one and see some shit that, that I pull when I get into that place, right? Everyone has uh, some aspect of ego, which can act in dominating ways, if not. And so we feel more uh, sense of we navigating this together, rather than I versus you. We, we drop into what I write about in the book is we consciousness. And just to be clear, we consciousness doesn't negate individuality. It doesn't negate, there's a phrase in Buddhism, not one, not two. We are collective, we are not separate, and we also have individual expressions. But we consciousness, I would kind of describe it as a felt embodied understanding of in this together, even when we're navigating conflict together, that doesn't mean that from that place we give permission to quote unquote wrongdoing or harm causing, not at all. It just means we're going to navigate it from a different place. So for example, I was recently coaching some people in a Buddhist community abroad that are navigating information they recently learned about a teacher they've all had on a big pedestal. This happens in so many communities, right? All this information came out that they didn't know. Uh, In this situation, it was sexual abuse power. And they know that as angry as they are, as hurt, as pissed, uh, they want to together find a place to navigate this that matches... Who they what they know is possible rather than yet another aspect and expression of cancel culture in our world, we know where that's going to lead so I think your your questions are so rich, and uh, we could probably just keep going, but yeah, I think I'll pause there on that one
0: <laughs> yeah i i'm I am reminded of the projection inherent in all of this i guess not just Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the projection you know we're here we are talking about embracing our own darkness and our own shadow and how might that make us um less called to label others as the bad one or the one who commits offenses yes
1: and in fact what we can instead do is bring more awareness to the systems that Collective ego, the systems that humans have created based on this stuff that's informed each and every person when you're – that's behind a lot of the harm we're we're seeing, right? Mm -hmm. And one other piece I want to say from that last question, um, I'm in a position of leadership in many ways in my life uh, as a teacher, as activist, as mentor – and I'm in a position of uh, guiding, training leaders. And I love the opportunity in this time of reinventing what leading from shared power is and means. And I'll just say one of the things it means for me and within my community is we want to remember everyone's humanity. Never in a million years would I try to present myself or um, support others in seeing me uh, through the lens of anything other than I'm human. I'm doing the best I can. I'm full of light and full of shadow. I inspire a lot of people and i vocally everyday share. I practice transparency, my own uh, inner challenges, my own shadows, the ways I'm working with that so we can all be working together to awaken rather than holding our teachers separate from that so it's it's like active humility we need more of that in our world and just transparency uh, I talk about it also as showing up naked like mm-hmm. there's this weird weird idea in today's world like a leader supposed to have arrived supposed to be perfect supposed to be polished, supposed to never fail or do the wrong thing. I just show up naked as I am and let the moment, which is also emptiness and darkness guide me so I can be used in service. But there's no polished arrived leader that needs to be presented. That's part of authentic power is dropping that shit. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And it goes both ways, right? Like I actually, I, I, I've talked about this so many times on the podcast, I'm sure everyone's sick of it, but I feel like I finally understood the nature of projection, not through the negative projections that we put off, but often the positive ones, right? So it's like, I feel like that's the same. We're putting people on pedestals, I feel like, because we're projecting something that we're not yet ready to embody within us, whether that's positive or negative. you
1: got it. I love that you brought that up. I love that you brought that up. Yeah, so you spotted, you got it. You see a great light in that teacher. You've got it. You see uh, passion and authentic leadership in someone. You've got it. You see integrity. You've got it. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I want to talk a little bit, you're good for a little bit longer. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um,
0: I want to talk a bit about illness uh, because it's something that I think is important <laughs> and, Uh, something that you've experienced, I think, in a similar way to how I've experienced it. Um, My sort of darkest period thus far in my life, I'm sure there will be more moving forward, but a really profound one for me, I sort of had struggled with illness my whole life, but then um, I got divorced and I left my job and my home and pretty much everything. And got incredibly sick, more sick than I'd ever been before. And uh, it was basically a lot of like digestive stuff, but skin stuff. So my entire face broke out and like, like acne doesn't even describe what it was. It was really bad. And I was afraid to leave the house. So I lived by myself in a cabin in the woods for the better part of two years. And I, I was interesting to me because I guess I feel like for me, I, well, I wanted so desperately for it to go away and tried every tool imaginable to fight my body over this. Uh, where I landed was, and it, it I feel like this landed pretty early on. It maybe took a while for it to become the sort of like dominant paradigm of my thought, but I felt incredibly grateful because i I recognized that it had forcibly taken me out of my own capacity to avoid things um and like and how do we there's this thing i think that people find uh, take issue with when when speaking in these ways about like seeing our illness as a gift or something that they feel like that's maybe the same as saying like you brought this on or like you you know you created this or invited this or this is like your gift or something in a way that doesn't sound or feel so good um so i'd love to know like how can we approach something so devastating as illness as an invitation but not you know as um something to take you know blame for or yeah
1: yeah yeah thank you for for sharing that and for sharing about your own experience. Um, You know, I want to pause. I feel inclined to just ask if you might be able to name a couple things that, oh, for lack of a better word, that you harvested from that experience. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, so much. Um, I think one major thing was this recognition that I was not at war with my body, but in fact, in a partnership with my body. And, um, I remember I, I had, I met someone, I was studying astrology at the time and she was studying Reiki, I think. And we decided to trade. I gave her a reading and she gave me a a Reiki session. And I remember she was asking me about and I was struggling still very much with the sickness and she and how much, you know, I still wanted it to go away. (laughs) And, and I remember sort of coming to this realization in the session that like, this will go away when it's meant to go away. Um, and in the interim period, like, I feel like it, there was this process of, of, um, anger and trying to control and being at war and being resistant to acceptance to actually gratitude
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and and then thinking well maybe my body isn't doing this to me maybe my body's doing this for me and yeah. when i stop needing the physical signs that something's wrong once i learn to feel that more intuitively um, this will dissipate, uh, which I think is what happened. So that's like one of many things, I guess, that were harvested. But
1: Beautifully and wisely spoken. Um, and I would say all of that um, resonates with my own experience. So I had Lyme from a tick bite and... I got the tick bite at the monastery. I didn't know. I didn't know I had Lyme. So for for years, it was a mysterious illness, and certain doctors loved to give it labels or think they knew what it was, but wasn't until quite later on (laughs) in the healing process that I knew what it actually was. But it, it didn't matter because I had already recognized it as actually one of the greatest teachers of my life. And... I want to pause and say, when I was young and I was a student of uh, environmental studies, I was working for an organization that uh, protected indigenous peoples and traditions in the face of globalization. And there was such a recognition and awareness and appreciation of the way so many of these peoples um, And specifically, I'll name the Ladakhi peoples in northern India, who we got to learn so much about, lived with this humility and partnership with nature. Lived in a state of not, it's raining today and I wanted sunshine, fuck, or I'm not getting what I want, something's got to change, or, but this ability to recognize the rightness of being, to recognize, um, that what came could be met with peace and more of a grace than battle. And in the culture I grew up in, I came to see a pattern uh, so much battling against, battling against our bodies, uh, battling against the natural world. Or you and I talked about control earlier in this podcast, trying to mm. control trying to control externals, right? So that if the externals are right, if they're kept right, and that includes the external of like, if I create the right identity, I I know who I am, and this is the identity I share with the world, and if it's the right one, then things will be okay, or I will somehow feel okay. And that's just not where it's at at all. Learning to live in partnership with the ebbs and flows and movement of life, learning to rest in what I would call energetic stillness, uh, with the dynamism of life. There's so much joy in that. (laughs) There's so much freedom in that. So that said, for me, uh, you know, I woke up around the age of 30, feeling like I was in the body of a 90 year old woman out of the blue one morning, had no idea what was happening. Uh, managed to slowly take my walk through the woods from my hermitage to where the the monks gathered each morning, Um, had no idea what was going on and began this journey that I bet many listeners can recognize either if they've had chronic illness at times or have witnessed a loved one, but kind of that up and down, like flare-ups of unfathomable symptoms and then back to kind of an okayness for a bit or flaring up again. Very, very mysterious. And because I already had um, quite a bit of meditative training under my belt, I could recognize but really let go of some of the intense fear stories that arose. Everything from what did I do to deserve this? What does this mean about my future and the rest of my life? What if, all the what if stories, and just take it on as a a teacher of love. I knew love was what I'm here for. So how from not the conditioning of the world or the rational mind or even what the doctors were suggesting as ways to navigate it, but how could I let myself attune even more deeply than I ever had to the subtle body, and the inner compass, the wisdom of my body. And that, when I say that, really I'm including the integrated body mind. And I'm talking about body physical and body mystical, body as a portal to consciousness. Uh, Could I listen deeply enough to operate in partnership with nature throughout whatever happened? And if we approach anything in life that way, we're not so focused on the outcome that process itself is life-affirming, right? And so for me, um, Lyme was, as I said, a great teacher. My willingness to go beyond certain aspects of my conditioning that I hadn't yet uh, gotten bored with, or been courageous enough to let go. I finally was, and I can give a couple examples of that. Well, I'll give one example of that. You know, I have a phenomenal family, and we all receive conditioning from our families, as well as school systems, religion, society, media, all of it. So one of the condition messages that's in my family, um, a family of very engaged in the world, people, artists, activists, creators, people who get uh, recognized for what they do. It's some kind of message of, you are loved based on what you do. You are loved based on what you do. I hear you laughing a bit. Can you (laughs) acknowledge that message too? Yes. (laughs) And I had never been aware that that message was still seated in me. So I remember I had to leave the monastery at some point to get some medical attention and first was told, you're going to take this um, medicine for what they thought was fibromyalgia, which wasn't, and it's going to make you feel a lot shittier at first until it improves things. And so for like six weeks, I had to lie down on my back doing nothing. And then came up this kind of fear of, what if I'm not able to do again in life? What if I'm just going to be unlovable because I'm not able to achieve? I had a whole identity around that, right? And there was this phenomenal freedom because I knew how to rest in the pause. I knew how to question the conditioned voices in my head. And I was able to surrender to a place around that deeper than I ever had before. And up came this fiercely compassionate voice that said your presence is your contribution mm. and i recognized that as true and it changed something in my life forever you with me mm-hmm. just the notion of it, it it didn't matter if i didn't get better <laughs> it right. didn't matter if i was lying down flat on my back for the rest of my life my presence my essence is my fucking contribution That's incredibly freeing. If we know that, and that's one of the things embodied meditation teaches everyone, (laughs) you get about the power of your essence. Um, It's a game changer. So I could share many stories like that from Lyme, but that was one that occurred. Oftentimes, people with chronic illness find themselves existing in states of less energy than they wish they want maybe no energy and maybe a huge to-do list, uh, maybe a sense of how am I even going to survive in this relative world of productivity, so slowed down. But there is an invitation in every illness to get to know the darkness teachings of the yin, slow, invisible processes of nature, both through and within our bodies and to recognize them in life, that can be incredibly healing. Some people had, if they had privileged enough circumstances, a similar kind of healing through the slowing down some experienced in COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yeah. But So one of the other teachings of darkness and expressions of darkness is the yin, slow, receptive aspect of nature. Right.
0: Yeah, I I had a very similar um, situation, uh, the whole concept of drama of the gifted child and how, you know, our grandiosity is just another expression of depression, like an avoidance of ourselves. Um, And I think that's what my, my illness sort of, yeah, one of the many things, Um, because I couldn't, I couldn't do any of these things anymore. I couldn't, keep up appearances, I guess. And yes. so yeah. without that, I remember asking myself sort of early on in this process as I was, you know, like, okay, well, like I kind of put all this value in my looks and I, what I was doing at the time, my work was, um, I did marketing for natural products brands, but I also was a health coach and had a health and wellness blog. And so I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> I'm a fraud. Like I can't do any of that anymore. Um, And so it was like every single thing that I'd sort of put these, these external sources of value um, were sort of taken away from me. Um, And yeah, I remember asking myself like, well, Anya, like if you lost, you lost like an arm, would you still love yourself? And
2: that the fact that I knew (laughs) the
0: answer was no, was like a big wake up call to be like, okay, I think you need to figure out who you are. Like, beyond the physical
1: (laughs) yes yes and also recognizing the wisdom of our bodies like you mentioned skin the skin is a wise eliminator so if there's stuff that needs to come out and through us if there's emotions or ancestral stuff or trauma uh, I've uh, had my skin wig out before it but got to recognize that this is a sacred process I can honor Uh, so there's so much that we when we're coming from conditioned labels and a misunderstanding of the body's inherent wisdom, we mislabel the symptoms that happen to us. We miss the sacred messenger of what's this whole overturn my body's going through right now. Or as you mentioned, your whole life went through overturn. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I wonder too, just to end on, we haven't talked that much about, um, nature, at least not specifically, I have sort of in a peripheral sense um but I also feel like that was a big uh reconnecting with nature or maybe really connecting for the first time consciously, uh, I think was another gift of of experiencing the illness that I did had that I had and, it reminds me too, I know you've studied different shamanic practices, and I, I think that's wisdom that we've unfortunately neglected too, that so much of, I think, shamanic teaching is around, you know, if you are sick or, or ill or struggling physically or uh, psychologically or emotionally, that it often is um, a symptom of disconnection from the natural world. Yes. Um did you have those
1: experiences as well? Well, Uh, Yes. You know, for me, I was really lucky in that, even though I grew up in the city of LA, uh, which is uh, a wilderness in itself. um, I I had a family that uh, spent a lot of time in nature and had a deep uh, respect and And love for the wild. And so that informed me greatly. But number one, there was so much pain as a young person, right? As we start opening our eyes to the ways nature has been and is continuing to be abused. And so there was that experience of grief. And then there were just the ways that my conditioned mind was louder than my ability back then to recognize the own more subtle rhythms of myself as part of nature. So all that began to heal through meditation practice. And around that same time, I, uh, I, I left LA after high school. So around that same time, put my hands in the soil, became an organic gardener and farmer, just felt drawn to very simple living on the earth. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I would say that I believe today so much of the disconnect people are experiencing so much of our collective confusion around myriad domains can all be brought back to disconnect from nature. I'm leading a course for women right now called Body as Pilgrimage. Uh, It's about experiencing and journeying into our bodies as the physical, energetic, and mystical wilderness from which tremendous medicine comes. And it's just interesting because I've noticed with people who are newer to that kind of work, and even people who come newly to meditation, there can be kind of a residue of certain approaches to the work that's about like I've got to, well, here, here's a, a better way I would put it. Like that notion um, when you hear <laughs> people who certainly love the outdoors, but they're like, yeah, I've climbed that mountain 20 times. Like <laughs> Conquer, as if I've like, yeah. conquered it, you know? Yeah. Or like I've whipped my body into shape. Mm-hmm. Or like <laughs> that kind of, it's all an expression <laughs> of the solo heroic spiritual warrior in different forms. When we are up for partnership with nature, we start learning to meet our bodies, to meet one another, to meet sexuality and eros, to meet uh, our work, to meet whatever engagements we're having, how we engage with a tree, with some basic, basic qualities of curiosity, openness, and an Emptiness, meaning getting out of the way enough, getting my conditioned notions out of the way enough to actually meet the mystery as the mystery and let it inform me, let life inform me. I hope this is uh, coming through clearly because it changes our orientation to everything. And it makes it so that every experience and every context we're having can be an experience of partnership with life, with nature, rather than the I who stands outside of life assessing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was
0: going to say and all of those questions, of course, could be asked, you know, toward ourselves, because of course we're not separate from
1: nature. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, Eden. This was great. I'm sure we could keep going. I love when these conversations are so easy and fluid. Uh, so grateful to speak with you.
1: I'm with you deeply, deeply enjoyed our time. And yeah, we could probably go on for hours.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I always ask guests at the end, a couple of questions. One, if you could let everyone know where to find you, um, and learn more about you and your work and your books. And then also I ask if the guests could recommend a book or two, which I know is a difficult question to to, to pick, um, but a book or two that was really sort of life-changing for you um, regarding this topic or, or any other.
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, You can find me at my website, deborahedentoll.com or I'm on social media, Mindful Living Revolution. You can find me there. And I have all kinds of offerings from a weekly online meditation group to plenty of retreats and in-person gatherings. And
2: Awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah. And in terms of books, there's so many that I could name. But in this moment, I want to first just name one of my favorite books on Zen Buddhism in the world. And it's called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. It's quite refreshing because it's a small book Mm -hmm. that is packed with wisdom, written by Suzuki Roshi, who brought uh, Soto Zen from Japan to the U.S. many years back. And uh, it's also a book you could read over and over and over. And... On another note, I think I would I would recommend braiding sweetgrass to everyone. Uh, we touched on the nature connection topic, but there's so much richness <laughs> in yeah. that book. And one of the elements of endarken is really partnership with nature and an awakening to our multinatural uh, intercommunicative capacity to listen to life to have a conversation with a tree to listen to the cosmos to listen to the world beyond our isolated conditioned mind. <laughs> yes, sure.
0: Yeah. I always wonder how it's one of my favorite books too. We read it a couple years ago. I had a we did a book club for a while and that was the mm-hmm. first one we read. Um but I always wonder like how different the world would be if that book was required reading for kids.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm with you.
0: Life changing
1: yeah yeah maybe it will be one day
0: <laughs> would be great <laughs> all right well thank you so much again hopefully thank we can you can do this again
1: sometime would love to be well Anya. you too
0: hello again thank you for sticking around and listening to my conversation with eden i highly recommend her book i think it's officially out at the end of october but you can pre-order it i will have the links for all of that in the episode description, along with the music that I played today. And if you like the music that I play on the podcast, I do have a Spotify playlist with every single song I've ever played on the podcast, plus lots of other playlists that I offer and have up for free as well. So you can check that out on Spotify. Just search my name, Anya Katz. And uh, yeah, hope to see you in our Retrograde with Intention course. We start September 17th, Saturday evening. But if you hear this after the 17th and you still want to join, um, please don't hesitate to reach out or sign up. Uh, It's totally fine for you to sign up late the first lecture and all the lectures will be recorded so you can watch those at any point. And yeah, if you'd like to join the community on Substack, .substack anyakots.substack.com. I'm going to play you out today with a perfect song for this episode. Uh, called The Fruitful Darkness by Trevor, Ho- Trevor Hall. I'm shocked I have not played this song on the podcast before. I've played a lot of his music um, and was sure that this song would have been up there because it is 100% about uh, the darkness and uh, the experience of going through that and coming out on the other side. And it's a song that I listen to quite a bit during my own period of darkness. Um, yeah, it's interesting, actually, uh Trevor, Trevor Hall. Why am I having such a problem saying his name? Um, he wrote a couple of albums really uh, talking about his experience going through a Saturn return. The Fruitful Darkness, which is what this song is from, uh, was written after the fact. Uh, it was such comforting music to hear how someone else was struggling <laughs> during the period of their late 20s as I was so intensely. Um, so I really resonated with so much of what he spoke about and and felt really as- inspired by his own experience and, you know, making art out of this process and really sticking with it even when he wanted to escape. So I highly recommend this album. And well, I don't remember the name of the album that came before this, but I'm going to look it up now and tell you. So Uh, yeah, The Fruitful Darkness, he wrote after he went through this really difficult period of time in his life. And then the album before that, which was Kala, I believe, um, also recounts the the experience he had. So I recommend both albums. Um, Some really beautiful songs. You Can't Rush Your Healing is on Kala. Just awesome and very relatable. So enjoy the song. Uh, Thank you for supporting me thank you for being in this world in this community and making it so fucking special and so amazing and I don't exactly know what the future will will look like but I know that there will be a lot more opportunity for all of us to hang out together and to learn together and dance together and cry together and exist together live together you are all super cool. Even if I haven't met you, I'm pretty confident you're cool because like 99.9% of the people that I've met through this podcast have been cool. Um, so sending you all so much love and support and reach out at any time. I love hearing who's out there. If you have thoughts or concerns, or you just want to say hi via email or on Substack or on Instagram say hi, let's connect. All right. Talk to you next time.